All of the officers hovered over the wardroom table as Jim spread out the chart to stake out our search. The bulkhead clock struck four bells, 2200, reminding us to get going. Jim, how much time have we got? Twilight is at 0550. Let me have those dividers. Setting them for ten miles, I stepped off from our position around Paisang, turning back to the coast and along up to seven stars. Eighty miles plus twenty-five more to escape to good diving water after the attack is too tight. If I were Japanese, I wouldn't mind Paisang out to the twenty-fathom curve where the junk fleets fish. Cut that in half and it will save us about twenty miles. Max piped up. The whole coast looks good, particularly both sides of Fuyan Island. Everyone nodded. Agreed? We go in. Wipe those rueful smiles off your faces. I know no sub has ever done this before. That's our great advantage. Surprise! We must paralyze the enemy until we've finished all of our Sunday punch, our last four torpedoes forward and four aft. We must get away before he counts his strength and realizes he can wipe us out. Believe me, he won't know what hit him. When he finds out, we'll be gone. Any questions? How do we spot anchored ships near the beach? Dave, take that piece of plexiglass you have that fits the PPI scope. On it, trace the coastal contours, rocks, and islands shown. Compare that with the larger scale chart of the coast we have. We'll investigate any closer blurb that doesn't match. Taking Jim to my cabin, I informed him, for his ears only, that I was sending an eyes-only personal message to Captain Shepard in the Pakuda, inviting them to join us. Together, we could smash the six-plus ships. Jim agreed. I wrote to Shepard... I am positive the convoy has anchored. Picuda is now about twenty miles from us. Barb will search the coast and can wait one hour if you care to join us. I warned Chief Radioman Henson not to reveal the message or Shepard's reply to anyone. In five minutes, Henson gave me Captain Shepard's response. Drop dead. Time 2326. North of Paisang, we moved in at full speed on three engines. The fourth was on charge, topping off the battery. Visibility was lowering. I took this opportunity to talk to the men, for no one was asleep. Shipmates, we've got this convoy bottled up along the coast. We're going to find them and knock the socks off of them. When we attack, we'll strike and strike hard with eight torpedoes. We'll overwhelm him, topple him, keep him off balance until we've skidded out of the harbor. This surprise will be Barb's greatest night, a night to remember. If you have any questions, I'm coming through the boat now. Starting in the forward torpedo room, I asked James White where his torpedoes were. Tubes three, four, five, and six, sir. Let's move five and six up into one and two. When we shoot, I doubt the water depth will be over thirty feet. I don't want any mudrakers. Set their running depth at six feet. Passing by the officer's small galley, I asked Ragland, who was busy brewing more coffee for the long night, How's it going? Captain, if you think you hear the dishes rattling, that's not the dishes. That's my teeth. Calm down, Ragland. We're going to be all right. Don't forget, you could have gotten off if you had paid your gambling debts. Are you sure you want to go in with me on our next patrol? I'll tell you tomorrow. All the way through the boat, no questions were asked, no conversation started. Men merely signaled with their fingers in a V, thumbs to forefingers in an O, or thumbs up. The control room was like a morgue. The normal joshing had vanished. Back on the bridge, soundings came up monotonously every five minutes. Ninety feet. Seventy. Fifty. Forty. Jim came up, indicating he wanted to talk privately. We moved to the back of the bridge. Have you had a reply from Picuda? I waved my index finger back and forth, indicating nothing doing. Captain, don't you think you should put the men in life jackets? 
No, Jim, I don't want to frighten them. I need them on their toes and thinking. Look, this is your first patrol in Barb. I've never seen the men so quiet before. The control room was so silent, if I had dropped a pin, it would have sounded like a depth charge. I know the gung-ho capabilities of each of these men. They have faith in me. I have faith in them. I'm not going to let them down. No, Jim. No life jackets. It's too alarming. The odds are with us. Believe me. 23 January. We continued our relentless search up the coast among our entourage of several hundred darkened junks. With constant helming, Jack maneuvered the barb frequently to avoid collisions. The silence was broken only by the mechanical giving of necessary orders. The night dragged on. No one cared to sleep in the ambience of imminent combat. Time 0112. Captain Dave, this chart plot matching is showing an uncharted smear northwest of Incog Light. Checked this on the radar A-scope and got saturation pips at 29,800 yards. Both the radar operator and I say they are definite ships. The only doubt is our radar has never before had saturation pips on ships at such a range. Well done, Dave. Continue the search. Watch for patrols. They can't all be asleep. Captain, blinking light ahead. No, it's gone out. Probably a junk, Lego. Dave, check Incog Island. See if you find anything moving. Yes, sir. Something there at 14,000 yards, moving counterclockwise around Incog. Log her posit and the time. I'll circle right here until the situation clears. Time 0240. Bridge must be an escort. We're picking up Japanese radar sweeping from her and a couple of other bearings. Took her 21 minutes to disappear on the other side of Incog. The captain apparently is more concerned with using his radar to keep himself off the rocks. Probably. The moon is set. Visibility is poor. I'll have to revise our fire control party, assuming the convoy is on the other side of Incog. Heading up the coast again toward Incog, we cleared the junks. None ahead. I preferred to have them or to know the reason for their absence. We knew of recent mining activity in this vicinity. Mines could have been laid from Incog to Tay Island. Still, a more effective field would be from Incog to Pingfong, closing the eastern harbor entrance. The anchored ships were too close to that point, so no minefields then existed. Bridge picked up another escort patrolling off Pingfong and a third due east of the ships. Whoops! Here comes our circler again at 7,000 yards. Jim, I can barely make her out. Looks like a frigate. She's going to be a damn nuisance being so close when we turn into the harbor, unless... Captain, you're cutting out. Unless what? Unless we give her the revolving door treatment. Let me know just before she disappears. We'll go ahead emergency and skin around Incog when she's on the other side of the island. Shoot and shove off. Time 0300. She's disappearing. All ahead emergency. The barb galloped forward, intent on outfoxing the foxes. The harbor opened as we rounded Incog. Timothy Maher, Lehman, and Dave, watching the radar, whistled. My God, Captain, the harbor is chuck full of ships at ten miles. Get me a count and their formation. Jim, fortunately we have a flexible fire control party for night surface attack, and now we're going to flex it. I'll take your place in the conning tower. You take navigational plot below. Secure target plot and send Dave to radar since there's no zig plan to these. Send Tom to the bridge to assist Jack. I'll keep the con. Understood. Time 0320. Radar counts about 30 ships total, including the three escorts. The ships are anchored in three lines parallel to the coast with a few smaller ones closer in. On one radar bearing, we counted 12 ships. The lines are about 500 yards apart. Fantastic. All ahead standard. Jack and Tom took over surveillance from the bridge. I went below and switched on the intercom. 
Men, we've successfully entered Namquan Harbor undetected. We've got the biggest target of the war in front of us. Our approach is starting. Make ready all tubes. I figure the odds are ten to one in our favor. Man battle stations torpedoes! The gongs resounded to cheers. Action at long last. Max had an idea. Captain, the tide is ebbing. I'd like to use a speed for the anchored ships of one and a quarter knots to take care of the drift of the torpedoes. Logical. Do so. And with the seas, wind, and tide, the ships should be heading 050 to use for a course. Also smart. Jim brought up his chart for perusal. I marked the navigational position for firing a mite less than 3,000 yards from the inboard ship line. This was six miles inside the 10-fathom curve, plus 19 more miles to the 20-fathom curve, our home in the deep. Fire control, listen. We'll attack with bow tubes from the southeast on a 90-track, swing right for stern tubes on a 60-track, praise the Lord, then gallop. Jim, the stern tube shot will be on our escape course. We'll have about an hour and a half run at flank speed to get clear. I'm electing to retire through the area marked unexplored on this large-scale chart. It contains sufficient rocks awash and rocks positioned doubtful to make any over-ambitious escort think twice before risking a chase. Also, it crosses the masses of junks, which should be a definite and final barrier to pursuit. That course will stop ships. I hope you're not including Barb. Me too. What countermeasures do you expect? Possibly searchlights, hot pursuit, gunfire. No depth charges, for sure. Stealth, stupefying surprise, and a sprinkle of serendipity are Barb's hallmark. What's that last? It's the faculty of making fortunate and unexpected discoveries by accident. Luck is where you find it, but to find it, you've got to look for it. Time 03.52. Took a quick run to the bridge to check the phosphorescence. Through binoculars, it was easy to see the lines of ships quietly at anchor. The center escort was off our starboard quarter about 3,000 yards. Tom, watch him. Through the telescope on the TBT, the individual ships in the first line were quite clear. The second and third line ships formed a complete overlap from end to end. No one had ever had such a perfect target. Jack, get on the TBT scope. Now look at that big ship just left of center. Got her. That's our first target. I'm putting the scope on our second target, the largest ship to right of center. Take a look. Check. When we shift to stern tubes, you put that ship and your crosshairs on the after TBT. Now get on that first target and stay on it until we shoot. Conning tower, use TBT bearings and radar ranges. Jack's steady on. How's it look? Checks. I'm going below. Dave exclaimed, what a beautiful target. It measures 4,200 yards of continuous overlap. We can't miss even with an erratic torpedo. Range is coming on, sir. Time 0402.40. All ahead two-thirds. Open the outer doors. Dick, insert 150% divergent spread. Final bearing. Mark. Fire one! Fire two! Fire three! Fire four! Dave, Max, shift target to the right for the stern tubes. Dick, our problem is to keep too many torpedoes from hitting the same ship. Make your next insert a 300% spread. Time 0405. Stern tube gyros are approaching zero. Final bearing. Mark! Fire seven! Fire eight! Fire nine! Fire ten! All ahead flank! Sonar on the torpedoes! Sounding? I dashed to the bridge. All binoculars were trained on the ships. Tom? Don't worry, Captain. That frigate hasn't seen us. All torpedoes hot, straight, and normal. Perfect. Breathless seconds dragged, awaiting the rape of solitude. Time 0406. Two hits, main target. She's settling to the bottom. Hit in the second line behind the main target. 
Time 0407. Hit large freighter, third line. She's on fire. She's flaring up in flashes. The fires are being snuffed out. She must be sinking. Sounding 29 feet. Time 0408. Hitting time after tubes. Hit first line. What a geyser. Another hit in the first line. A large freighter. Good Lord, she's belching out a huge cloud of smoke. Time 0408.36. Hit second line. My God, the whole side of the ship blew out toward us. She sank. Time 0409.40. Take cover! Far ship and third line hit and exploded. Munitions! Projectiles 6 to 12 inches are flying all over. Searchlights are sweeping. Let's get out of here. She sunk. Bridge, they've turned on air search radar. Probably think they're being bombed. Hold it. That close escort is heading this way and speeding up. Range 6,000 yards. The one-off Ping Fong has her surface radar steady on. Range 10,500 yards. Looks like we're in for a race. The one at Incog must be behind the islands. Keep on them until we get to the unexplored area. Then I'll need the radar to stay off the rocks. Let me know if they're closing. The whole harbor, which had lit up, was now full of smoke. I couldn't see anything astern. Jack and Tom were jumping for joy. We could hear the cheers below. Smiling, Jack said, Captain, if you bring Barb safely out of this one, the Medal of Honor is a cinch. That bothered me a little. Napoleon once claimed he could win a war on a trunk full of medals, but that's not submarining. The Barb's goal was maximum damage to the enemy. That meant sharing our contacts with any sub close enough to get in. Submarine crews chasing metals wouldn't do that. It was no good. A wolf pack would fall apart operating that way. That was why I wanted to stay with the loopers. Jack, please forget metals. Bridge, closest escort is gaining. Range 4,200 yards. Engine room, tell Chief Williams to crank up every revolution he can squeeze out. We must have more speed. After torpedo room, reload your last four torpedoes. We may need them. Jim, stand easy on battle stations. Have the 40mm and twin 20mm gun crews standing by in the control room. How's the navigation coming along? Right on track. Time 0420. Dave, escort range? 3,600 yards, closing. Get Williams on the phone. Chief, I need more speed. Sir, the engines are at their top speed now. Any more and the governors will cut the engines out. Well, tie down the governors and put 150% overload on all engines. Time 0430. Dave, escort range? 3,200 yards. Still closing, but not as fast. We're making 23.5 knots. A new world record for submarines. Captain, engine room. The bearings are getting hot. Let them melt. Jim, how close will we pass the rocks? The rocks awash and the straw stack rocks. 3,000 yards, tubes 7 and 8 are reloaded. That's a record. Cut into 1,500 yards from the rocks. Jim, I can see she's a frigate. I doubt she'll start shooting until she's close to 2,000 yards. Then she'll have only her bow gun. She must illuminate like they did to us in the South China Sea. The minute she does, we'll shoot two torpedoes aft and turn in toward the rocks, hoping she'll take a shortcut or give us a broadside and pile up. Time 0436. Junk's ahead, 900 yards! Oh my God, we can't stop now. Get me a last range on the escort, then shift the radar to sweep back and forth 30 degrees on either bow. I'll try to avoid the junks. God help them. Range 2,700 yards. The barb highballed toward the 20-fathom curve, maneuvering wildly. Within minutes, the escort stopped chasing and opened fire on the junks. Their inferior radar evidently couldn't distinguish between a junk and a submarine. No searchlights were turned on to attract a possible torpedo. At 0438, as the frigates commenced firing, the Tay Island lighthouse keeper illuminated. A fleeting thought, I must write a letter thanking him for his courteous navigational assistance in these crucial moments. Time 0446. 
We untied the governors on the main engines, slowed to flank speed to cool down the bearings, and secured from battle stations. We sent a message to the Picuda on the results of our coastal foray. Separately, I sent another eyes only to the skipper. I offered to make a joint foray along the coast that coming evening or the next day, though we had only four fish. His response again? Drop dead. Time 0511. The galloping ghost of the China coast crossed the twenty-fathom curve with a sigh. I had never before appreciated how much water this is, but this would be the first place they'd search for us, so I decided to stay on the surface after dawn, half an hour away. The cannonade astern continued. Poor junks, absorbing punishment meant for the barb. Time 0633. Radar has a plane coming in fast, seven miles. I exercised a skipper's privilege to change his mind. We dived. Sounding? As radar went under, the last range was 2.5 miles. Depth of water is 40 fathoms, sir. I sat on the edge of the diving plainsman's bench and opened the ship's log. I wrote, January 23, 1945, 0635. Life begins at 40 fathoms. I yawned as a great letdown set in. I told Swish to take her down to 150 feet to cool the barb off and let everyone get some sleep. Captain, Swish said, you need some shut-eye, too. Do you realize you've been on the bridge for over 24 hours? You didn't even come down for a wee. Swish, I can assure you I didn't do it in my britches. Tell me, how was it down here while we were in the harbor? Captain, the few who were discombobulated calmed down when I said, No strain. If anything happens, we can get out and walk. It was that shallow. Even less than thirty feet at times as I watched the fathometer. We got away from Nam Quan like a two-year-old at Santa Anita in spite of one command you failed to give, sir. What was that? Put four cases of beer in the cooler. After we fired the stern tubes and with all the explosions, I knew you were too occupied and had forgotten. So I got a few of the shaky ones to put four cases of beer in the cooler to cool themselves off. Swish, you're not a chief. You're a prince. Thanks. I went to the intercom. Now hear this. Well done to each and every one. Eight hits. No errors. Be proud of a night none of us will ever forget. Barb did it and will live it forever. Your dowdy Chief Saunders came through in the crunch and put four cases of beer in the cooler. We'll celebrate at 1600. So turn in all along and recharge your own batteries. After diving, we heard distant thunder below astern. Explosions, gunfire, bombs, depth charges. All indiscernible, but angry. The barb slept. But the rest of the world didn't. As debris from the exploding ships splattered the nearby coast, reports started flying thick and fast. Local residents ran out of their paper-windowed houses to watch the conflagration and battle. Soon overcome by the acrid fumes of the spreading smoke cloud that enveloped the harbor, they ran back in and buttoned up their abodes. Ten miles north of Namquan Harbor at Pengyang, a pocket of resistance still held by the Chinese army, the troops manned their bulwarks, anticipating an attack. Even there, the sounds of the battle to the north were disruptive. One of the merchant ship captains of Mota 32 bolted out of his bed in the room above the harbor tavern at the first explosion. He knew the sound well. As more followed, he knew they were not bombs. How was it possible for a submarine to penetrate this port? What had been overlooked? He threw on clothes, raced downstairs barefooted, slid the front door open, and went outside as the ship exploded. In the fireball light, he recognized her. The Taikyo Maru, an ammunition ship with the Moji Takao 32 convoy heading for the Philippines. In the light, he also saw his own ship afire, flaring up and settling as the water extinguished the blaze. 
he heard a voice say, I pray not many men are killed. Whirling around, the captain saw it came from the tavern owner, Chang Su. With typical Japanese courtesy, the captain thanked Tzu, not knowing the chief of the spy ring's concern was only for his pirates. Tzu wondered how this would affect his spy network. Author's Note Postscript In May 1991, I interviewed a retired Chinese merchant ship captain as to the feasibility of this interchange. He said the Japanese trained many of their captains to speak Mandarin Chinese fluently and used them as spies when their ships visited Chinese ports. Ashore there, they were indistinguishable from the Chinese. The world never knew how deeply Japanese spies had penetrated China before their invasion. Radio Tokyo announced to the world on the evening of 22 January that the U.S. Third Fleet was bottled up in the South China Sea. That evening, Admiral Bull Halsey slipped through Luzon Strait under an overcast and re-entered the Pacific. Coincidentally, the barb told the Pakuda at that same time that she had a convoy bottled up on the Chinese coast, Nam Quan. The barb struck first, just before dawn, against some thirty vessels, eleven escorts and sixteen ships, according to Japanese records, and laid claim to three ships sunk, one probably sunk, and three damaged. She escaped unharmed from what some called her kamikaze attack. In a post-dawn strike on Formosa, Halsey's third fleet laid claim to five tankers and five freighters sunk. This time, Japanese aircraft succeeded in striking back. A bomb hit the carrier Langley, and suicide planes crashed into the heavy carrier Ticonderoga and the destroyer Maddox. These kamikaze victims had to retire to Elithi under escort. Time 11.30. In the barb, the last distant thunder below was logged. All gun-firing, depth-charging, and bombing ceased, and the ensuing silence awakened me. I dashed this message off to China. From Barb. Action. ComNav Group China and China Air. Your latest info resulted in eight hits in Pot of Gold, X Found, your convoy, plus others and possible large warships anchored at Namquan Harbor. Last night, X, three ships known sunk, X, terrific explosion, X, can you give us types and extent of other damage, X, many thanks from Barb, X, coast not suitable for sub-operation, X, suggest aircraft mines, X. In Chongqing, Admiral Miles relayed this message for action to comm subpack Admiral Lockwood and for info to Admirals Nimitz, Halsey, and Ernest King in Washington. Miles then sent the barb, Wonderful job getting sinkings in that spot, X. Agree with you on mining, X. There are no planes available, nor have they ever flown over that area, X. Attempting to get damage for you by every means available, X. Months later, Miles informed me privately that six spies had gone aboard the largest ships posing as fishermen selling their catch. One had even climbed up the anchor chain. By bribing the watch with free fish, they were permitted to sleep on deck overnight. In the morning, they left before the convoy got underway, having obtained information on troops, cargo, and equipment. Miles further stated that the barb had damn near ruined the spy system. Three of the six pirates on different ships had been killed by our torpedoes. Of the three returning, one wanted a camera to take pictures, one quit, and one said nix to spying at Nam Quan. The U.S. Naval Group China operated under an agreement made with Chinese General Tai Li, Chief of Underground Activities. This established the Sino-American Cooperative Organization, SACO, headed by Tai Li and Admiral Miles. Within a day, reports on the attack tumbled in from Tai Li's agent and from Chang Yi Chao, supervisor of the pirates who cooperated with and assisted Admiral Miles. The barb's dispatch via Miles to Tai Li came in first. 
A second message from the pirates was sent to a U.S. coast watcher who radioed Nav Group that the barb had sunk three destroyers, damaged one, and sunk four other ships. Third, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Carl Divelbliss, who had charge of the Coast Watchers of Section 2, Intelligence Net 4, reported in from Changchow. We had the extreme pleasure of being advised that out of the northbound convoy reported by Ping Hai on the 20th, a submarine on the 23rd definitely sank three of the destroyers and damaged four other ships of the convoy. Fourth, a report came via Chang Yi Chow that all 11 ships of the Japan-bound convoy had been sunk by the sub. I was also credited, falsely, with sending a message to the Coast Watcher, next time I'll put wheels on my keel. Still another report came from U.S. Naval Unit 8 covering the Wenzhou environs. On 23 January, Allied planes and 30 or 40 warships were reported in engagement with a Japanese fleet south of the Yuan Peninsula at Namquan. Radioman Robert Sinks of Fredericksburg, Texas, part of the SACO team of Coast Watchers in China, was stationed at Changchow in charge of relaying messages he received from them and their pirates to headquarters at Chongqing. He reported a message from Marine Sergeant William T. Stewart, their best and most daring Coast Watcher, who was based at Pinghai Island. Sergeant Stewart, who worked alone and frequently cruised along the coast using the friendly junks of the pirates working for him, reported that the submarine attack sank four ships and damaged three. The following day, Sinks received a message from the pirates stating that a large number of bodies of dead soldiers were washed ashore. Then General Tai Lee sent a message to the pirates to check the pockets of the clothing of all dead soldiers for possible intelligence information. Afterwards, headquarters considered that Stewart was taking too many risks, so they had him relieved, commended him, and sent him back to the States where he received the Legion of Merit for that tour of duty. Time 1600 Having surfaced after lunch, the barb continued her retirement to the east with the seas rising. Promptly at eight bells, swish past the word, Splice the main brace! All hands on deck! Below deck! You can't show a leg, so shake a leg! Chief Williams was awarded the honor of cutting through the convoy of ships embellishing the cake. His engines had established the new world speed record for a surfaced sub of 23.5 knots and an average of 21.6 knots for the escape. With a flourish, he presented me with the first piece. The interior was marbleized. I glanced at Phillips. How come, baker man? Captain, there were so many recipes and so many helpers, I would have had to make cupcakes. My solution was to use them all. Time 2201. We surfaced in bright moonlight and a cloudless sky, which prohibited any operation that night, so we headed across the bay to look for a lone sampan that we might capture to assist in the landing. No joy. 20 July. After breakfast, all the officers studied the charts we had recovered. Their hydrographic accuracy and contour lines on land showed elevations and configurations that our charts lacked. By noon, we had the optimum landing spot. Time 1517. The barb dived to reconnoiter our choice. Coasting with two fathoms beneath the keel, we sighted trains on schedule. The beach was sandy. No houses were within 700 yards. We were a mile offshore at 60 feet depth in 12 fathoms. The Japanese chart matched perfectly. Studying the local trains, we recorded that the number of cars varied from 7 to 32. The average train consisted of 12 freight cars, 3 passenger cars, and 1 mail or baggage car. Bill, more good news. I have the scope spot on your landing site. Beyond the beach, a grassy meadow stretches for about 200 yards up to the military highway. No animals. 
The land from the highway to the railroad about 100 yards farther in appears to be small scrub. Take a look. Beautiful. Can you see those twin peaks on the background mountains? He nodded. Those two peaks will be your guide while paddling in. I'll bring Barb into less than 1,000 yards from the beach by radar before you disembark. Use your magnetic compass, course 274. I doubt if tonight's the night. We need an overcast to veil that moon. Time 2132. Surfaced in a calm sea. The bright moon fouled up any landing ideas. A night fit for lovers. 21 July. Patience Bay is well named. It tried mine. While awaiting cloud cover, we did something useful, however. We took soundings of uncharted areas for the hydrographers. During the day, I held a conference of all the officers and the saboteur squad. Barb will approach the beach flooded down, ready to launch the rubber boats. She will come in on the batteries as silently as possible. The approach will be at slack water, time to arrive at the debarkation point by radar at 2310. The whole coast observes blackout afloat and ashore. By that hour, the inhabitants should be asleep. We'll be less than 1,000 yards offshore, so speak in whispers. That includes Tag heaving the lead for soundings. Questions? We'll lose sight of the black boats paddling in, commented Dave. Why don't we keep track of them and where they land by making up a tin radar corner for each boat? Great idea. Do it. I went on. Upon beaching, Sever and Newland will guard the boats. The other six proceed up the meadow and cross the highway to the track. At a suitable position for planting the charge, the party will divide. Marcuson will go fifty yards south on the track near the road as a guard. Klingelsmith goes fifty yards north near the road, and Richard twenty yards inland if he's not needed to dig. Walker, Swish, and Hatfield dig under the tracks and plant the battery can in charge. Then adjust the microswitch clearance and recall the guards. All get well clear, flat on the ground, head turned away with eyes closed while Hatfield makes the final hookup of the firing circuit to the charge. Understood? Max piped up. Shouldn't we build in a test circuit in case a wire has come loose in the waterproof battery can? Hatfield concurred. Good idea. Do so. Communications are simple. Those of you who have been Boy Scouts will remember the two bird calls to be used. First, when you approach a group, always whistle, Bob White. This is the alert signal and will save you from being strangled by your shipmates. I had each man practice the call, and everyone passed save one. Sever, you sound like a sick quail. If you can't whistle this, I'll have to substitute a quartermaster for you. With that threat, he became a blue jay and could mimic any bird. Your other whistle signal is for assembling. Use the whippoorwills. T-la-tee. Try it. All passed. Willie shook his head. Captain, these are American birds which may not exist in Japan. True, but I'm banking on my belief that the Japanese won't know any more about their bird calls than the Americans do. Now let's move on to other signals. A blast on the mechanical whistle signals for an emergency dash to the boats. Two very stars indicate we are in trouble, lay a barrage in the direction indicated. One very star from Barb signals we are in trouble, will return every night. W on the blinker gun means the landing party is returning to Barb. Last, one very star at 15-minute intervals informs us that you are unable to locate Barb after 30 minutes paddling from the beach. You must stay together. Plan on the party debarking at 2320 and landing on the beach at 2335. Return no later than 0230 for twilight commences at 0245. No further questions? Okay. Another lover's night. Only one sampan was sighted moving along the beach while we hooted at the moon. 
22 July. Continuing the sounding of uncharted areas, the barb bided her time. The scant five days left on our patrol weighed like a 100-pound sack of potatoes on my shoulders. My fingerprints were all over the barometer from shaking it to eliminate this high-pressure area. After lunch, as I caressed it, there was a slight drop. Silently praying, I hopped up to the bridge. Chuck, how's the weather? No change, sir. Calm, one sweater. I scanned the horizon in the hope that there just might be a wisp of stratiform in the white smudge on top of the mountains to the southwest. For half an hour I watched it develop as southerly breezes sprang up, flinging out plumes of cirrus clouds. Following these came a white stratus capping the peaks. I could feel my heart pounding. Jim, what's the moon for tonight? Three quarters on the wane, rises at twenty-one hundred and sets in the morning. Why? Come take a look. What do you know? Cloud's coming. Tonight's the night? You can bet on it. I pressed the intercom. Men, we have a stratus moving in that will cover the sky, a moon tonight that will glow above, and a soft breeze. At long last, we have the ideal weather for which we've been waiting four days. The saboteur squad will land tonight. Cheers resounded below. Permission to come up, sir? It was swish. Captain, what you just said hit the boys below like a short circuit. It brought everybody to their feet. Can we splice the main brace when we return? This event is as important as a ship sinking, so why not? Actually, you could take beer ashore as a picnic ration, but you would be leaving a clue behind. Certainly no official could object to each man having one beer after we sink a ship, the first submarine ballistic missile rocket assault in history, or the smashing of Little Iwo Jima. If I had followed the doctrine of providing each man two ounces of booze every time we were depth-charged or bombed, we'd be under the weather at times. So far in forty days, each of us has had only five beers. I'm sure a sixth would do us good. We need some yeast. Also, I've become superstitious. Every time I've forgotten to put the beer in the cooler before firing, we've had trouble. Swish, put four cases in now. Swish hurried away to do my bidding and returned in less than a minute. Captain, there are already four cases in the cooler. Everyone's been so busy with the train attack that the cooks forgot to bake the cake and we forgot to splice the main brace after we sank the frigate. Blimey, Swish, forget the cake and pass the word to splice the main brace now. We shall not dishonor one of the noble traditions we inherited from the British. As we sipped our cherished single libation after days of patiently waiting and observing, the undercurrent of expected action sweeping through the boat made each man's spine tingle. It struck Kamikaze. Again he pleaded with me to let him join the party, promising not to escape. Again I told him to stay with me. Time 2200. Heading into the drop point, we had a final briefing, and I took Walker aside for a private chat. Bill, avoid trouble. If the spot isn't good or the odds poor, bring the squad back. Watch your men for signs of freezing at their task, not ordinary fear or apprehension. If you find one, escort him back to relieve Newland as boat guard. Keep your men together and quiet, going and returning. No unnecessary conversation. All going well, don't get cocky and try something else. I want neither prisoners nor injuries to Japanese except those positively required. Slip in and slip out without being detected. Make sure your group and the boat guards have both meat and liver for any dogs or strays. You have one mission only. Booby-trap the train and bring the men back safely. The latter is more important. Flooded down, the deck almost awash, the barb had a silhouette somewhat similar to that of a schooner or patrol boat. If we were seen from the shore, the rubber boats would not be. 
No one would suspect a submarine so close to shore or in such shallow water. It was very exciting. In the dim moonlight, the rubber boats were being inflated, equipment was gathered together, and last-minute quiet joshing was well in progress. Time 22.30. Radar contact. Two small vessels coming down the coast. All stop. We lay to, tracking them at five knots. Time 22.55. Sir, they're zigging toward us. Ahead two-thirds, left full rudder. All hands go quietly to your gun stations, all guns. Do not sound the gongs. We were losing valuable time till they passed clear. 23 July. Time 0000. In position, two fathoms under the keel, twin peaks capped with clouds, shoreline 950 yards. Launch the boats. I had planned to say something apropos of such an operation, like, synchronize your watches. Instead, I whispered, boys, if you get stuck, head for Siberia 130 miles to the north. Follow the mountain ranges. Good luck and God bless. Shove off. We watched the boats all the way in. Radar easily tracked them by their radar corners. They made a couple of circles and zigs, taking almost half an hour. Momentarily, we watched for shots, flares, and a general clamor, but the blackness of the night engulfed everything in a challenging silence. Time 0025. The boats had been dragged up to the beach. Certainly the barb could be seen, but not identified. Not a light was visible anywhere. I felt positive that once the initial landing was made unopposed, the rest would go off smoothly. Time 0047. Captain, a train is coming up the track. My God, Max, there are no lights except a rare glimmer from the firebox. White smoke is swirling back. The boys ashore must be in the middle of their digging job. I pray that train doesn't get derailed due to the holes under the track. Crossing my fingers, I held my breath, my imagination running rampant. Not having noticed any trains at night, it had not occurred to us that they could be so perfectly blacked out. Compared to us, the Japanese were past masters at blackout. Trouble for the saboteur squad began as the rubber boats shoved off from the barb with Bill in the lead boat, Swish following in the second. The twin peaks they expected to use as a reference point vanished in the clouds. The compasses were erratic because of all the metal objects around. They tried to keep a line from the barb, which they could see, perpendicular to the shoreline. Consequently, they took over twice the time for the transit and landed in the backyard of the first house to the north of the meadow. Fortunately, though the party was only about fifty yards from the house, no dogs put in an appearance. Dog tracks accompanied by barefoot human prints were noticed on the beach. After a short period of huddled reconnaissance, the main party left the boat guards. They proceeded cautiously inland, skirting the house, and arrived at the expected meadow. Only, what appeared to be grass when seen through the periscope turned out to be waist-high bulrushes that crunched and crackled with their every move. All shapes took on human forms and scared a few of the party. Arriving at the highway, they held another huddled reconnaissance. All was clear, so Bill dashed across the highway, calling, Follow me! He fell headfirst into a four-foot drainage ditch full of branches. Pulling himself out, he whispered cautions to the men, then ran across the highway and tumbled into yet another ditch. One hundred yards farther up, they arrived at the railroad track, reconnoitered, and selected their spot for the charge. The three guards were posted, with Marcuson being told to examine a water tower-like structure down the track. Digging commenced. The pick and shovel striking against the large, crushed stone of the railbed clinked and clanked, broadcasting their presence in the eerie hush. They stopped. 
After a whispered conference, they started digging again with their bare hands, pressing with the implements when needed. Hatfield's ears pricked up. What's that noise? Someone is running up the track. Hearing no bob-white alert signal, they grabbed their weapons to dispatch the intruder. Swish cautioned, Take it easy. At this time of night, there's no one running up this track except a scared American. Marcuson appeared, breathless. Why in the devil didn't you give the alert signal? We could have killed you. You know, that funny structure I was to check? I climbed the ladder and poked my head over the edge. There's a guy in there asleep. I tiptoed down and ran to tell you it's a lookout tower. My mouth got so dry when I tried to whistle, all that came out was whoo, whoo. Marcuson was sent out again to stay well clear. Work recommenced in earnest, progressing nicely except for an occasional whimper, ow, as a fingernail was torn off by the sharp stones. Bill stopped. I saw a light flash down the track. At Hatfield's direction, everyone pressed an ear to the rail in good frontier fashion. They heard nothing. Must have been someone getting out of bed to have a pee call. Back to work. With the breeze from north to south, the surprise of hearing and seeing an express train roaring down on top of them less than eighty yards away brought panic. Bill jumped clear and into a briar clump, adding more scratches. Swish slid into hiding behind a scrub tree fifteen inches high. Hatfield leaped into a shallow foxhole and felt two shots hit him as the train roared by with the engineer leaning far out of his cab, looking at them. Thinking this must be it, Hatfield felt his body slowly rising out of the foxhole. The carbon dioxide cartridges on his May West life jacket had gone off and inflated the vest. Time 0052 The passing of the train left some men crossing themselves as others, too, stepped up their faith. Though a bit jumpy, they increased the work pace with more muffled owls. At the end of the first hour of the operation, Severin Newland, guarding the boats, were becoming edgy. If the beach patrolman came by every two hours, as Kamikaze had said, the odds of his appearance were far greater than fifty-fifty and increasing. Both had brought welder's gloves, the heaviest on board. Neither having volunteered to approach the dog first, if the handler let him loose, a compromise was necessary. Each had his pistol in his right hand and the stake or liver in the left, gloved hand. They would challenge the patrol together. On the barb there was a sigh of relief as the train went by. Now it was like awaiting the birth of one's offspring. Everyone was pacing the deck. Twenty minutes after the train passed, the holes were completed. The scuttling charge and battery were carefully buried and disguised. Hatfield checked the test circuit by depressing the microswitch. Mr. Walker, I'm all set to wedge up the microswitch and make the final hookup to the charge. The night became melodious with the soft whistles of the whippoorwills and the guards creeping in. Each of the group had been trained for the other's job in case something happened. Now came the moment, with all assembled, to lie down clear and leave Hatfield to make the final connection alone. Now came the moment when everyone except Hatfield mutinied. All five, including Bill, decided that they wanted to make sure Hatfield connected the circuit correctly. As they watched over his shoulder, he performed the task perfectly. The charge was now alive, but a discussion started. Let's see that distance gauge with which you set the microswitch under the rail. Hatfield drew it from his pocket and held it up for all to see. It sure looks like an awful lot for a rail to sag. Suppose the old man's calculation was wrong and trains go over it and it doesn't explode. He'll never let us come ashore again to move it closer. 
all nodded in agreement. Klingelsmith straddled the rail and patted the ends of the two wedges, moving the live switch closer to the rail. Markison kneeled down with his red flashlight and called out the distance remaining. About a quarter of an inch. At that, Hatfield interrupted, For God's sake, stop it before you blow us all to kingdom come! Bill and Swish agreed. Head for the beach together. En route through the bulrushes, two men got the bright idea that the squad should grab a couple of prisoners or toss a couple of hand grenades into the two Toyota trucks back of the house. Bill was ready for that one, simply saying, Nix, the skipper warned me about you two. Swish whistled the Bob White alert call about twenty yards from the boats. Newland and Sever replied, relieved. Time, 0132. On the barb, we muffled our cheers as we saw the blinker signal, dot, dash, dash, that indicated that the boats were leaving the beach. Shifting my horseshoe to another pocket, all I could think was, what good luck. I had already eased the barb in to six hundred yards with the sound heads and speed sword arm raised in case trouble arose. Less than a fathom beneath the keel was sufficient. Time 0145. On the fifty caliber machine gun, Epps yelped, Captain, another train coming up the tracks! The boats were only halfway back. Grabbing a megaphone, I broke the silence. Paddle like the devil! Wasted. The boats had already spotted the train. Their paddles churned like egg beaters. The train, streaming white smoke, was getting closer and closer. Any second now. Even the boats stopped to look. What a moment. Our world stopped. Everyone was awestruck with the expectancy of imminent destruction. Time 0147. Boom! Wham! What a thrill! The flash of the charge exploding changed into a spreading ball of sparkling flame. The boilers of the engine blew, engine wreckage flying, flying, flying up some two hundred feet, racing ahead of a mushroom of smoke, now white, now black. Cars piling up into and over the wall of wreckage in front, rolling off the track in a writhing, twisting maelstrom of Gordian knots. Fires sprinkled among them. And then a gap of seconds before the sounds of the explosions were hurled across the water, sounds of the grinding, snapping, crushing, tortured steel and wood. Stunned, speechless, I began to breathe. Then I grabbed the megaphone and hollered, Paddle! Paddle! We're leaving! Starboard ahead one-third! Port back one-third! Left full rudder! The barb twisted around to head out. Time 0151 Boats alongside, one hundred proud hands hoisted the victorious saboteurs on board and hauled the boats up on deck. The barb slowly slunk away at two knots from her victory over unforeseen odds. The gods were good to us. I could have secured from battle stations, since we would be in water too shallow to dive for a while. Instead, I said on the intercom, All hands below deck not absolutely needed to maneuver the ship have permission to come topside through forward and aft deck hatches. The hatches sprang open and men poured forth to gawk. Torpedomen, radiomen, stewards, engineers, cooks, the barb disgorged her flock. Maneuvering on batteries, only the man on the controllers, the helmsman, and the radar watch in the conning tower remained below. A full-circle binocular sweep showed the barb to be alone. Ashore, the chaos continued, with lights being turned on in some houses. The lights of an auto coming down the road joined the fires flickering alongside the tracks. Shortly thereafter, military vehicles came racing to the scene with sirens screaming. From macro to micro, our stage disappeared as we pulled away, but never to be forgotten without a flush of pride. 
Quietly secure from battle stations, clear the decks, and close the hatches when everything is stowed. Set the regular sea detail. Time 02.30. Splice the main brace. Jim looked at me. I thought we would have it with the cake at 1100 this morning. Jim, do you think these tigers are going to bed now? They've got sea stories to tell until their great-great-grandchildren drift off to sleep. Listen to them. The questions will never stop. Time 0400. By now, a parody had developed, a takeoff on the song Down in the Valley. This was being sung by the full barb chorus of saboteurs over the intercom. Naturally, some inspiration came from pharmacist mate Lehman's snakebite cure for stress. Down off Kashi Ho, Kashi Ho so shallow O, oh. hear that train blow, love, hear the barb blow, O. Oh. Late in the evening, hear that train blow, so dear to me. The train did stop, love. It did not go through hoo-ah-hoo-ah-hoo-oo. And now it's gone, love. And so are you, hoo-ah-hoo-ah-hoo-hoo. The train did blow, love. It blew and blew hoo-ah-hoo-ah-hoo-hoo. Thank heavens it's gone, love. And so are we, hee-ah-hee-ah-hee-ee. That train is gone, love. And out of sight, a-ight, a-ight. Good night, my darling. Darling, good night, a-ight, a-ight. Good night. With one last shout, Hear the bar blow! They spliced the main brace and turned in, exhausted, to dream of their loves. Chapter 28 Countdown to Graduation 23 July Time 11.15 Brunch over, I gathered the officers together for a conference. Now that the train job is history, we only have the rest of today, the 24th and the 25th, then Barb must be through Kunashiri Strait by midnight the 26th. Our priority now is Shiratori, where we'll reconnoiter for a triple rocket massage. Following that, we lay a single massage on Kashiho to finish off the last of our rockets— that accomplished, there are the large fish canneries at Chiri on the northeast leg of Patience Bay to bombard. Then we must head for Kunashiri to depart at the time granted by our extension. Chiri will finish off the rest of our five-inch ammunition. Questions? Max expressed some minor doubts. Quite a full schedule. We'll have to clobber one a day to meet it, in addition to the normal barb philosophy to expect the unexpected. We really ought to hold back a bit on some of the smaller ammunition to have a modicum of self-defense with no torpedoes. Max is right. Meeting's over. The barb submerged off Shiratori in the late afternoon. Our reconnaissance was postponed due to haze. No rockets this night. At least, that's what I thought. Late that afternoon at Admiral Nimitz's headquarters in Guam, a courier plane had just arrived from the States. His orderly met the plane, signed for his mail, and begged the latest copy of a San Francisco newspaper from the pilot. This went immediately to the Admiral. Nimitz took a hard look at the front page, then sent for Admiral Lockwood. "'Charlie, I've had enough trouble with the reporters hinting that I am lying about the attacks and movements of the Third Fleet. Look at this!' Front page center lay a map of Japan from Kamchatka to Okinawa. An inch-wide arrow swung out of the Pacific. It split at Kunashiri Strait, with nearly half its width swinging off into the Sea of Okotsk toward Karafudo. The other part passed down eastern Japan— he pointed to the lead column, the deepest penetration of Japanese waters yet by a section of Halsey's fleet. Nimitz smirked. Lockwood frowned. 
The article went on to say Tokyo Radio had previously reported that the north coast of Hokkaido was preparing for an invasion. Meanwhile, the attacks continued. On 18 July, the frigate 112, under the command of Captain Ishiwata, was sunk by torpedo about noon while escorting the ferryboat Soya Maru. The fortress of Nishina Toro fired cannons and three navy warships went to mop up the sea, but the effects were unknown. Fleet Admiral Nimitz had no comment. It must be Barb, Chester. Charlie, find out what she's doing. From Com Sub Pack to Barb, X. Eyes only, Flucky, X. What are you doing, X? Open up and give us the details, X. Jim, take a gander at this rocket that I must answer. What's up, Captain? The problem is not what we've done since our last message. What scares me is the logistic report required at the end of all our messages. When Uncle Charlie sees Torpedo Zero, it'll set off his alarm bell. He'll think that Barb is defenseless. 24 July, time 1219. We submerged and worked in close to Shiratori, happy with the cloud cover far above. A close look with only a smidgen of water beneath the keel proved not only that Dave had become an outstanding diving officer, but also that Shiratori was an ideal target with huge factories. One chimney disappeared in the clouds. Using the ST radar in the periscope to obtain its exact range and the linear divisions of the exit eyepiece, I calculated the height to be better than 400 feet. Radar technicians Lehman and Mayer checked radar's PIP to use it in conjunction with the data computer for the attack. Now we could get an accurate fix that would ensure our smacking the largest factories. Time 1934. Well out of sight and overjoyed with our key find of that chimney, the barb surfaced. Everyone was eager to get on with the night's work. We were no sooner up and starting supper than Gearhart handed me two messages. I read them aloud. From Com Sub Pack Action Barb Info Barnstormers X. Com Sub Pack's hearty congratulations, Flucky, upon sinking frigate and destroying track and train. X. Depart area and proceed midway. X. Damn it, I knew this would happen. He's already given Barb's area away to the Barnstormers Wolf Pack on the polar circuit. Captain, he's ordered us out. Do we secure now and set course for Kunashiri Strait, or will you go ahead with the attack plan for tonight? You bet your boots we will, Jim. Are you going to disobey the Admiral's orders? No, it's not disobedience. He didn't specify the route we were to take to depart. So we depart down this western coast. To expedite, we'll rocket Shiratori just after dark, then proceed at flank speed down the coast and rocket Kashiho before dawn. From there, we skid across the bay to bombard Chiri. After that, I'd like one more crack at luring a single minefield frigate into deep water. Then we'll head for Kunashiri to leave the Sea of Okotsk. Jim, did I ever tell you that the Russian word Okotsk means hunter? Though they probably were referring to seals, that's still our job, and we're going to hunt as long as we can. Oh, I guess one can call some of this sea lawyering, but previously Lockwood did give us an extension to 2400 on the 26th of July. How about the other message? It's just the nightly news. Here, read it. Daily Scuttlebutt, X. Barb reports sinking one frigate and blowing up one choo choo train with landing party and own demolition team put ashore, X. Sea Robin reports two ammunition loaded sea trucks and two luggers joined their sister ships on the bottom of the sea, X. Runner and gunnel arrived Guam, X. Time 2117. Man battle stations rockets! Tom, while we are easing into Shiratori, I'll go below to check the chart. The Japanese charts we recovered are invaluable. The one for this area has an enlarged insert, including the factory district plan. 
Below, Jim and Higgins were all set. The navigational plot aligned exactly with the chimney, and Jack's attack plot was also exact. With visibility decreasing, the barb snuggled silently into position at slow speed on her batteries. On my way to the bridge, Max gave me the thumbs-up sign that the rockets were ready. All stop. Tom? Sir, I can barely make out that chimney. Forget it. We've a beautiful picture on radar. Jim, let me know when we're 5,100 yards from the chimney. Max, put us on the launching course. Captain, don't forget that we're launching at maximum range, so we have to steer three degrees left of target to allow for the right drift of the rockets. Understood. We only have four fathoms of water now, any closer than that 5,100-yard range on the chimney, and we touch bottom. Yell when you're ready. Set. Time, 2236. Rockets away! The first batch of twelve went swishing out on their way to the biggest factory. Reload! Thirty seconds later, they landed, sounding like bombs. Three minutes later, the second batch zoomed off, landing with heavy explosions. We reloaded once more and twisted the ship slightly to get the town hall and large factory. The third batch went in a flash to turn the town upside down. Secured from battle stations, we left the launcher set up and set course for Kashiho, where, offshore, the barb had had her ears pinned back by that terrible Teretsuki-class destroyer. Time, 2310. Lookout Parker cried out, Captain, two large fires just broke out back at Shiratori. Muffled explosions were ripping the factories apart. Brooks, come right in reverse course. We can't miss this. Fire's our most destructive agent ashore. More fires started. Many more explosions shot flames up into the heavy overcast. Willie, pass the word to open the forward and after deck hatches. Permission is granted for all to come up on deck to enjoy and witness the effect of the rockets. Shift propulsion to the batteries. Now back only 4,000 yards from the shore, Willie circled the barb at slow speed while fires spread amid continuing explosions. We gawked, feeling a bit heroic and Neronian at the same time. Time 2350. Captain, we must get moving for Kashiho to attack before dawn. Thanks for waking me up, Jim. Fire is the answer. Look at its spread. I know. I've measured its breadth parallel to the coast. Nearly three miles of buildings aflame. Wow! Men, clear the decks quietly and close the hatches. As soon as you're clear, flank speed coming up. 25 July. Time 0224. Man battle stations rockets! Visibility being reduced to about 6,000 yards and water shoaling fast caused a bit of a delay as dawn approached. Finally, the barb stood still long enough to hiccup her rockets at 0310. Through my Polaroid goggles, I watched the flash as each rocket slid down the pipe rack onto the needle-sharp firing pin, igniting the powder to blast off. The flare died about ten feet above me in a diminutive shower of sparks. Each took an explosive charge ashore more than double that of a five-inch shell. The barb and her crew stood still, breathlessly waiting for the thirty-second voyage in space to terminate in the rolling thunder of falling bombs. When it came, buildings blew, but there were no fires. Jim set course for Shiratori to review our damage. Securing from battle stations, we felt a bit sad. That ugly, pipe-rack rocket launcher had touched our lives like a stray, hungry mutt that one adopts. Max and I had often watched Swish with his emery cloth rubbing and honing the firing needle pin to remove rust and to sharpen it. As Max said, the way Swish caresses it, you'd think it was alive. I regretted knowing I had given my last order forever of rockets away. Nara Katsumasa, a provost corporal who worked for the Shikuka division of the police force, filed this report. 
Military strategy in Karafudo is changing from anti-USSR to anti-USA. Several incidents taking place have indicated the coming of a USA attack, though only a few were informed of this. The bombardment of Kayoto Island for five hours without a stop, Shikuka attacked by five enemy ships, and the blasting of the freight train are cause for alarm. I was working at the Shikuka Air Base. When the ice in the Sea of Okotsk began melting, enemy submarines frequently approached along the coastline. The torpedo planes continued searching along the coastal line but could not find them. One day I joined the searching flight but did not find any. About that time, the nearby Shiratori Police Center sent information that there was a possible spy on land. So I took one of my men with me to help them. Judging from the fact that the enemy submarines never missed their target from the first firing, possibly a spy communicated to the submarines. Last night, a civilian reported that he witnessed an exchange of light signals between the mountains and the sea. The two signalers said there was going to be an attack soon. Tonight we returned to our inn. After we finished our dinner, we heard a sound like thunder over our heads. We immediately went out. They bombed the gasoline storage of the Oji paper factory, the largest in Japan, in Shiratori. Then the gasoline drums started exploding. The firemen could not stop the fire from spreading. I thought, I will catch the spy. I watched the people on the spot carefully. Then, thinking that the spy would escape to the sea after the second bombing, I ran toward the wharf along the railroad. From the tracks we moved toward the beach. Crouched and looking around, we saw a small glowing ember in the darkness thirty meters ahead. It looked as if someone was smoking a cigarette. We thought that must be him and pulled out our pistols. We went close, within ten meters from the ember, which suddenly became brighter and larger, and the next moment very weak, as if he were exhaling a cigarette. We heard nothing but the sound of the waves. Holding the pistols on our eye level and aiming at the bright ember, I yelled, Who is there? There was no response. The flame did not move. Next I tried a body crash, but instead I landed in the sand. Just an ember fanned by the sea breeze. We were totally dumbfounded. Time 0445. The barb sat 6,000 yards off Shiratori again. For the last 45 minutes we had been in a heavy smog. Five miles south of the town we began hearing continual light and heavy explosions similar to those we heard seven hours previously. The smoke was now thicker, heavy with the odor of burning wood and paper. Unfortunately, visibility was about fifty yards, so we couldn't assess the damage. A sudden loud blast and rumbling explosion shook us, driving the crew out of their bunks. I explained the circumstances over the intercom to allay any misgivings. Some thought we were being bombed or depth-charged on the surface. Cheers resulted, though men were coughing due to the smoke. Jim, no use staying here. Set course across to Cheery. Time 0946. Man battle station's guns! Visibility increasing, Singer had sighted a large sampan. Time 0959. 40-millimeter gun, commence firing! In jig time, the sampan crew abandoned ship. Away the boarding party! Tom and his group scrambled aboard as the barb drew alongside. One Japanese volunteered to come aboard as a prisoner. The others took to their rowboat as we were only 4,000 yards offshore. The boarding party snooped into everything. Swish took their steering wheel. Klingelsmith and Petrosunas passed three anchors over to the barb. Tom picked up some snow crabs for supper. Another brought signal flags and the company flag. In half an hour I welcomed Tom back aboard. Nine down, six to go. Backing clear, we sank her with one five-inch shell. 
These single shots at the waterline from 100 yards saved a lot of ammunition. Swish, as soon as you have the five-inch gun secured, have Doc Lehman bathe, disinfect, and check the prisoner for any diseases. When he's finished, bring him to the wardroom for questioning. I want to ask him about Cheery. We'll be bombarding in about two hours. When the prisoner arrived, our linguistic tussle commenced. Evidently, he wasn't married. He claimed that he was a slave to the cannery company to which he had originally been indentured for ten years, but they wouldn't let him go home. This could be false, yet he was older and happy to be on board. Breaking out a Japanese chart of Patience Bay, I asked him if he had heard of any train wrecks lately. He nodded and put his forefinger on the exact spot. Two nights ago, enemy aircraft bombed train killed 150 men. Right there, say local news sheet. Our aircraft got the credit again, but my primary interest lay in the type of defenses around Chiri. We started to develop this when... Time 12.08. Captain, we've sighted the mass of a sampan toward Chiri and another farther down the coast. I'm heading for her. Good, Dave. I'll be up in a minute. We finally elicited from our prisoner that there were no guns larger than 37 millimeter, but there were some 15 seaplanes. These pontoon planes, he said, were based at the lake close inland from Chiri. I had my doubts, but to play it safe, we would remain outside of 15 fathoms for the bombardment. Time 1226. Man battle stations guns! Tom took over the watch from Dave as we approached the sampan and Chiri. Sir, I concede the sampan before it sinks. Ten down, five to go. Ten minutes later, we opened fire with the 40-millimeter gun, which stopped her. The five-inch gun then fired a single shot at the waterline, and she went under. Well done, Max. Now eliminate the cannery. Aye, sir. Swish. Shift the pointer and trainer right to the powerhouse. It's the smaller building with the chimney. When I check fire, move them left to the adjacent largest building. After each is demolished, move up the row. Resume firing. With that, the five-inch gun poured 43 rounds into the cannery. Sections of buildings blew up and large holes were created, but no fires. Incendiary ammunition is a must. We seized fire when our five-inch high-capacity ammunition was down to five shells. At the bottom of the magazine, we found three star shells. Someone's bright idea. They have no explosive, and the last thing a submarine needs is to illuminate herself at night. Time, 1250. Gun station secure and stand by below. There may be some planes nearby. We're going after a sampan returning up the coast. Time 1314. The sampan sank as Tom croaked. Eleven down, four to go. Tom, I'm going below for a bite to eat. It's your regular watch now. Find me four more sampans to secure our bet and I'll send you up a sandwich and some ice cream. Otherwise, you can starve. Aye, Captain Bly, sir. In the wardroom, Willie was chuckling over the dispatch I had sent to Com Subpack that morning at 0214 after our successful attack on Shiratori, providing the how, where, why, what, and when when they had requested to outfit other subs with rockets. It also detailed the mischief we had done. Captain, you recommended a big order, 1,000 rockets with a range of 8,000 yards to displace most of the torpedoes. Golly, we could rip up the coast with that quantity. Your last sentence is a beaut. Don't believe the rocket will replace the torpedo any more than the auto replaced the horse, but they are definitely here to stay, and fun besides. X. Will that get you in trouble? Willie, remember this. The truth can't be broken, but it can be warped. Perhaps it will wake up someone who can make decisions. We shall see. Time 1334. 
Captain, we've sighted a lone sampan and two more returning to the cannery. One of the latter has the other in tow. Coming up, Tom, you've practically done yourself in. Your reward is on its way. Raglan, please bring a couple of tuna sandwiches and two soup bowls of ice cream to the bridge before you man your gun station. Time, 1350. Man battle station's guns. Ahead flank. Between munches on my sandwich, I apologized for giving orders with food in my mouth, but we had to hurry before the sampan and her toe beached. Jim, Max, Tom, forget the lone sampan. She's out bored of us. Use the 40-millimeter gun to clear the deck of any opposition from the towing sampan. Then put in a waterline shot to sink her. With luck, if the tow line doesn't part, she might drag her toe down with her. This'll save us ammunition. If not, use the same system to finish her off. Time, 13.55. Commence firing! Within a minute of the waterline coup de gras, the target sank and snapped the tow line. I taunted Tom, Twelve down, three to go. Max shifted fire to the towed sampan, which stubbornly refused to sink. The five-inch star shell passed right through, leaving a clean, round hole six inches above the waterline. Our last three high-capacity shells finally put her under. Thirteen down, two to go. Let's go to flank speed and catch the last sampan. Time, 1413. The last sampan submerged with our last two star shells drilling waterline holes in her hull. We secured from battle stations with nothing in sight. Swish and Petrosunas, our five-inch gun captain and pointer, patted the gun fondly as they retired it until midway, all ammunition having been expended. Tom whimpered, Fourteen down, one to go. Where to now, boss? Jim, Coyote is only thirty miles southeast of here. Let's take a look at the reconstruction. Fleet Admiral Nimitz called Admiral Lockwood in again. Charlie, the reporters are giving me a fit. Radio Tokyo reported the bombing of Barb's train and the bombing of Shiratori and a smaller town to the south. I thought Barb left the area. She's upstaging Halsey, just between us. That's hard to do. Chester, I ordered him to depart his area two days ago. He did send a message yesterday giving the details we had previously requested concerning their rocket attacks. We believe he's on to a good thing. Following up on his advice, 15 subs are being fitted out with rockets. Splendid. Still, he may not have received your orders. With no torpedoes, he should leave. Give him a prod. From Com Sub Pack to Barb, X. Eyes only and action flucky, X. You come home, X. Acknowledge, X. Being in the same time zone as Guam, the Barb received this before we arrived off Coyote. I replied, Barb to Com Sub Pack X. Acknowledging X. Busy departure day, X. 25 July at 0310 gave final rocket massage to factories in Kashiho. X. At 0500 attempted review damage Shiratori, much fog and smoke. Assorted light and heavy explosions sporadically continued, perhaps hit jackpot. X. At 1235 bombarded canneries at Chiri. X. Sank seven more diesel sampans. X. New prisoner says local Jap newspaper stated our train destroyed by plane bomb, 150 men, women, and children killed, X. Latter probably propaganda. Anti-USA, X. He says troops only travel at night, X. Observation of Coyote on the surface revealed that only two buildings had been patched. The place was still in ruins with over half the buildings wiped out by the fires. Headed south to leave our area via the minefields and the north coast of Hokkaido, we hoped to entice a frigate out. After supper, I was giving advice to a lovelorn officer, Jack Sheffield. 
Married to a lovely gal, he was leaving the navy after the war. The separations of navy life were not for them. They would move to California and set up his business, but first he wanted to take his wife on a second honeymoon. He knew that I had married there. Jack, pre-war times were a bit tougher. I did borrow enough money, however, to take my bride honeymooning at Lake Arrowhead Lodge in the San Bernardino Mountains. It's a beautiful vacation spot, well laced with movie stars and starlets. Phoning to reserve, I asked for a room with a double bed. The only cancellation available had twin beds. I complained to the clerk. He gave in and said they would substitute a double. It was a lot of fun there in the rustic wilds, but with one oddity. When you went down to breakfast, you had to leave the doors open for the rooms to be made up. All the stars passing by always peered into our room. The last night there, the ballroom was open for dancing. Marjorie and I were dancing when the music stopped for an announcement. The orchestra wishes to dedicate the anniversary waltz to our newlyweds, Ensign and Mrs. Flucky. Will the other guests please leave the dance floor while we honor them? We were embarrassed because we thought we had been acting like an old married couple. After ages, the music ceased. We crept sheepishly back to our table with a starlet couple. Marjorie asked, "How did they know?" The starlets replied, "No, you have the only room in the lodge with a double bed. Everyone here has seen it and has been badgering the management. Their answer is that they had to truck that double bed all the way up the mountain from San Bernardino at your insistence, and they don't intend to redo every room in the lodge. So, Jack, don't expect a double bed." Time twenty forty. Captain, we've run into a heavy fog. This will scotch your plans for another frigate. Recommend we head for Kunashiri, though we will arrive there in the morning and won't be able to transit the strait. Concur, Jim. Do so. Gearhart entered with the nightly news from Com Subpack. Diurnal chatter. X. Whale and scabbardfish each retrieved one aviator, while Taro picked up three Britishers. X. Barb continued coastal depredations with rocket treatment to factories at Kashiho and bombardment of canneries at Chiri. Repeat, Chiri X believes hit jackpot at Shiratori because over thirty hours after rocketing, light and heavy explosions are continuing with much smoke. X Jap prisoner reports Nips believe plane blew up train. X also sank seven sampans for diversion. X Ciro arrived midway. X. Having read it aloud to the officers present, I yawned. It's too bad the wolf packs can't find something. Fellows, let's hit the hay and rest up. If this fog breaks, tomorrow will be a busy day. We'll sweep the west coast of Kunashiri Island for canneries and sampans. It's probably undefended. Twenty-sixth July. Habitually, I was on the bridge a half hour before sunrise in what I know is the most beautiful part of the day. Yet to me, it was also the most dangerous time for a sub on the surface. The watch was sleepy, their blood pressure low, the kaleidoscope of colored shadows was befuddling, and the white-hot intensity of the light at sunrise blinding. An enemy periscope or a plane skipping from cloud to cloud could go unnoticed. I, on the other hand, was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed from my rest. Our last dawn in the area had us mummified in a cold, dripping shroud of fog. We kept our binoculars tucked inside our foul weather jackets and depended on our radar and sonar to keep the unseen enemy at arm's length. Time eleven thirty. Captain, we've rounded Shiratoka Masaki. The fog is behind us. I can see the mountains on Hokkaido and on Kunashiri. Great, Dave. Close the coast to two thousand yards. All officers studied the chart on the wardroom table. Sure, we'll be seen, but we've got fifteen fathoms. Let's go.
Sweeping close enough in that we could wave at a few inhabitants on Kunashiri, we passed several small villages and pipsqueak fishing stations. Our Japanese charts gave promise of something at Shibatoro in 20 mile wide Numuro Strait. I counted on Admiral Halsey having eliminated nearby planes. Time 1435. We positioned lots of lookouts topside, but Bluth on the high periscope won the prize. Cannery dead ahead, headed to be dead. His boss, Higgins, cracked back. What a deadhead. Looks good, Max. Not a cannery, though. Lumber mill with a single tall black stack. There are three huge buildings and many smaller houses and shacks. To the right and toward the beach is a sampan building yard with sixteen rectangular box like cradles on tracks that run into the water. To the left of the cradles are neat rows of brand new sampans. Sir, I can count twenty six there, probably more behind them. Then look to the right. Seventeen more in three rows, three buildings behind them, and lumber piles to the right. Some are hard to see. Those large fir tree branches are scattered over everything. Keep counting, Willie. All cradles are full. Dave added, Those branches are for camouflage from aircraft. Despite all the strikes, this place is untouched. It fooled Halsey. Captain Battle Stations? Not yet, Jim. A head flank. Shankles, come right ten degrees. We're leaving? No, Jim, just a high speed sweep by to draw any opposing fire. All we have is the forty millimeter gun. None came. Reverse course. Time fifteen o two. Man battle stations guns. Tom have Ragland and Cole put the last four cases of beer in the cooler. This is a valuable target. Though we lack big ammunition, I feel lucky today. Aye, sir. Don't forget that these sampans are destructible, but non sinkable. They don't count for that last one you lack to win our bet. Max lowered his binoculars. I've found their assembly line system. They build the hull in the cradle, slide the cradle into the water for launching, then bring the sampan back up on rollers to install the engines and topside. When we shoot, Max, put the 40 millimeter on the powerhouse with the smokestack. After the initial burst with the twin 20 millimeter guns, pepper the general area to keep individuals from responding with any small caliber weapons. At 2,000 yards, you can start. Ready now, sir. I'll stop. Commence firing! Within two minutes, a fortunate 40 millimeter shell missing the powerhouse lobbed over and landed in a fuel tank behind. It caught fire and exploded, spreading the fire everywhere. Firefighting squads appeared with hoses. Bursts of 20 millimeter fire forced them to drop everything and flee into the forest above. Meanwhile, the 40 millimeter kept pounding away at machine shops, cradles, and any structure of importance. The mill was now a blazing inferno. Time and again, firefighters tried to stop the rapidly spreading blaze that consumed everything. Our gunners, admiring their courage, peppered close enough to drive them back without killing them. I never saw a Japanese even wounded. Now, out of 40 millimeter shells, we waited. In the face of our peppering bursts, an older man appeared, stripped down to the waist, walking down to the beach with two buckets. Max called out, Check fire all guns! Everyone watched him. He must have been the owner. At the water's edge, he stopped, shook his clenched fist at us, then filled his buckets. Turning around, he slowly walked back toward the mill, stooped over from the weight of the buckets. Suddenly, he stopped, dropped both buckets, looked at the Holocaust, then turned and faced us again. Looking at us, he threw up his arms in hopeless grief, his lifetime's work shattered in thirty stinking minutes. Turning once more, his shoulders stooped, his spirit broken, he wobbled up the path and into the forest. I could almost feel his tears running down my cheeks. Or were they mine? 
War is such hell. Time 16.30 Captain, there's a ship on the horizon coming up Nemuro Strait. She's turning toward us. Looks like a trawler. Must have seen the smoke and is coming to investigate. She was headed for Hokkaido. Good work, Don. How come you're a lookout again? No torpedoes, no battle station. I'm enjoying it. Welcome back. Max, secure the 40-millimeter gun. Tom, head for the trawler. Swish, what else are you hiding in your locker besides hand grenades? We need to sink this trawler. There's a case of rifle grenades, Captain. Break them out. She's our 15th and must not escape. Time, 1656. Commence firing! The automatic weapons opened up at 400 yards as we swept by. The trawler had a 25-millimeter gun, larger than our 20-millimeter, but quickly abandoned it. As we turned to come back, Swish was ready with his rifle grenades. He fired 18, yet only three penetrated the hull, making small holes about an inch in diameter. Each one exploded against the tough hull with little effect. This amazed me. When our boarding party was trained by the Marines at Midway, I saw this same type grenade rip through large timbers and even through eight inches of reinforced concrete. Baffling. It appeared the only way to sink this trawler would be to board and break some seacock. Tom's men could be ready in five minutes. In the interval, a fire broke out on board and her crew abandoned ship. We picked up two volunteer prisoners, seized fire, and let her burn. Certain that she would sink, the barb left this column of black smoke and trekked back four miles to the smoking inferno ashore. Time, 1815. The fires had done our work for us. All buildings were nearly leveled, leaving the tall stack standing alone, red-hot. The sampans to the left were completely destroyed. A fire had broken out to the right of the cradles in the lumber piles. The dry camouflage branches and the rising wind helped enormously, spreading the flames toward the remaining seventeen sampans and cradles. A bucket brigade on the beach fled our final burst of twenty-millimeter fire. Time, 1845. Firefighting attempts having seized ashore, the barb returned to her trawler. En route we saw and heard several oil explosions on board. These had no other effect. Tom was quiet, not offering to grant me my inevitable win on our bet. Swish finished off all his rifle grenades with no results. Our remaining machine gun ammunition would be wasted on this rugged hull, so we waited, unable to board. An hour later, Max remarked, I do believe this trawler is so tough she'll burn all night. I agreed. Tom smiled. Time, 1950. Send Singer to the bridge with his movie camera. Men, this trawler appears capable of burning till tomorrow, and Barb is required to transit the strait at midnight. Our only recourse is to ram. Do not be alarmed. When the collision alarm is sounded, lock the forward torpedo room watertight door. Leave all other doors on the latch. Tom responded, Captain, you can't ram. You'll damage the superstructure shutters of the torpedo tubes. Singer arrived and climbed up on the shears. Camera is ready, sir. Tom, I relieve you of the con just in case you're right and the bow is damaged. Besides, you might collide too softly and have that trawler stuck on our bow for days. To rub your nose in it, however, I'll give you the honor of participating. Sound the collision alarm! Tom grinned and did so. The sirens below wailed. The bridge hatch slammed shut. In seconds, Jim reported, Ship rigged for collision. Shankles, come left to course 242 degrees. All ahead one-third. Maneuvering room, make turns for seven knots. Without a waver, the barb turned in to ram. It seemed like driving a car into a burning garage. The radiating heat put a glow on our faces. Come right a hair. Make it two, four, three degrees. We're coming into ram from upwind. 
Make it 244 degrees, 20 yards to go. Hold her tight, Shankles. Pressing the intercom, I shouted, Stand by! Hold on! Here we go! Bam! The barb shuddered. The bow hit. We're riding up on her. Her starboard side is caving in as she rolls toward us. All back full. She's sinking stern first. Watch out, topside. Her foremast snapped across the bow, sending things flying. She's gone. Sunk. We are clear. All stop. Secure from collision. Let's have Bill Swish, Parker, Miller, and Arthur on deck to check the shutters. Tom was a good sport. He walked over, raised my hand on high, and shouted, The winner, and we're still alive! Fifteen down and zero to go! Captain, the bet was worth it just for this unforgettable moment. Permit me to say, well done. We flooded down aft to lift the bow high. Max joined in the shutters check. When he returned to the bridge, he reported, No apparent damage to bow or shutters other than some paint scraped off. They checked mechanically on opening and closing, so no warps or bends. Thanks, Max. One fire extinguished. Let's return to the other. Time 2030. Lying to offshore. The moon rose like a moldy lemon through the heat waves. As darkness fell, the flames licked hungrily throughout the area, finally reaching the last group of sampans and the sixteen building cradles. So far, thirty-five sampans had burned. The fire was licking its chops over the last aid, spanking new, fresh out of their cradles. In another hour, the cradles, too, with their sixteen unlaunched sampans, would be ashes. The sing-song crackle of flaming wood and fir branches strummed a lullaby. The barb would claim only the thirty-five she had witnessed burning, but the true total would be an astounding fifty-nine.